Good afternoon, Medical Education's podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva again, the editor of the journal, coming to you from Vancouver. And I'm joined this afternoon by Liz Wager, who is from the UK, but fortunately, given the time difference, uh, sitting in a hotel room in Baltimore at a conference. I'm thankful she's made time available to speak with me. Dr. Wager is chair of COPE, the Committee on Publication Ethics, a group that medical education belongs to and relies very heavily on for consultation around best practices in medical education publishing. And Liz herself actually has recently completed the PhD in peer review practices. And so first of all, Liz, thank you very much for being available and for providing our listeners with some of your expertise. It's a pleasure. Would you mind starting by just introducing COPE to our listeners? I've become very familiar with it as a result of taking on my editorial role, but have to admit that I didn't even know it existed before doing so. So maybe I could ask you to just inform people about what you do. Yes, sure. So COPE was founded just over 10 years ago. It was a group actually of predominantly UK biomedical journal editors who got together and felt if they had a really difficult ethical problem, they wanted to share it with other editors, but in a sort of confidential setting, because very often these were cases involving potentially quite serious misconduct or serious allegations. They didn't want to just talk to everybody about it, but there was very little formal guidance. The kind of cases that maybe during your time as editor-in-chief, hopefully you will only maybe have one or you know two of these sort of major cases coming up, And so there's very little experience and it can be difficult to know who to turn to. So COPE started really as a sort of self-help group of these, as I say, it started with a dozen or so predominantly medical journal editors. It's grown hugely though. We now actually have six and a half thousand members all around the world. We cover all disciplines. So we have journals in jazz music and feminist politics and the humanities and all sorts of things, as well as the biomedical and the scientific ones. And we are purely advisory. We don't have any sort of regulatory function, but we're there to help editors and publishers when they face ethical issues, really. The main way we help them, we have a quarterly forum meeting and members can bring cases in the way that they did right from the start. They bring an anonymized case and a group of members and give their expertise, their experience, their advice. The members are free to ignore that, you know, as I say, it's quite an informal process, Mm -hmm. but we do give advice that way. Then perhaps a little more formally, we also produce a code of conduct for journal editors, and we do expect our members to follow that. So actually, anybody can bring a complaint against a COPE member if they feel that they haven't followed that code of conduct. Fortunately, we very rarely do get those complaints, but we feel it's an important check and balance. And we also produce various written guidance documents that are available on our website, which is www.publicationethics.com, and things like guidance on how and when to retract articles, how to deal with the editorial board, guidance for new editors, that sort of thing. That has been an extraordinarily helpful resource. I'm sorry to have to correct you, but I had looked at the website before getting on the podcast, and I think it's publicationethics.org. Uh, yes. As opposed to oh, dot sorry, com. did I say dot com? Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I, should, I should know my own website, absolutely. <laughs> if that's the worst you forget today, you'll be doing much better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners will find some very useful things on there, in particular the flowcharts I found particularly useful in trying to help understand how to respond in certain situations. And there is a guide on there specific for authors as well as the editors. One of the 
things that you mentioned was the gross issues of misconduct, the very challenging ones where there may be involvement of editors and deans and authors and uh, very difficult situations. One of the things that we're finding ourselves struggling with more and more in medical education is actually some of the things that might seem a little bit more minor in many ways, and that it seems that oftentimes issues are coming up because people are just less than optimally informed about what's okay in publishing practices and what's not. One of the very specific things that comes up quite frequently is duplication of text that an author has included in a new submission from previously published work. Would you mind sharing Cope's point of view on what constitutes plagiarism and what authors should be on the lookout for when they're creating their manuscripts? Sure. I think we are increasingly seeing that. We're getting cases through to Cope, particularly because we now have much more sensitive, much more sophisticated methods for detecting text similarity, be it out-and-out plagiarism when someone has taken text from another author, I would define plagiarism as when you are reusing something, I mean it could also be a figure, doesn't have to be text, but you're reusing some originally created work and passing it off as your own. That I would say is plagiarism, but also the sloppy scholarship and lazy scholarship perhaps of reuse of your own material. And that we think of more as redundant publication. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people refer to it as self-plagiarism, but I personally find that a slightly odd term because I'm a bit pedantic about this. The original term of plagiarism, I believe, comes from a Greek word that meant burglary, it meant theft. And you can't really steal from yourself. But you certainly can, these days, copy and paste and recycle text. And I do think that authors and editors need to think about what the guidelines are Think about particularly what's in the good service for readers. I think the trouble with a lot of the software, you can come up with a number, and people are always coming to us and saying, Cope, will you tell us whether if we get a figure of 17.5% text similarity, this means misconduct, and whereas 16% doesn't? And we always say to them, hold on, there's a lot about the context that matters. So... If, say, you had asked somebody to write an editorial, an opinion, something that was their original thoughts, and if they were duplicating sentences from other people, I think you would be very aware and alert to that and say, well, no, that's just not acceptable. On the other hand, if you had um, a primary research paper and there were some sentences in the method section that were describing a very standard method or a method that had been published by other authors or that had been published by the same group and there was some duplication there, I think as an editor you would be saying, well, I don't think this is doing any harm. It might actually even be helpful if they're, say, using a standard database or some technique that's been used by other people. Actually, there might be some utility in everyone describing it the same way. So I do think you have to think about the context. You can't just look at the numbers and say above a certain percentage is wrong and below a certain percentage is okay. I think this issue, as I say, of the sort of recycling, we always encourage authors to be as transparent as possible. If you have a linked paper, mention it in your covering letter. Mm -hmm. Ideally, perhaps even send a copy of that paper to the editor and say, look, we published some different aspects of this study or some different parts of the data have already been published or they're being considered for publication elsewhere and be really open about it and then the editor can make a decision about whether they really feel that what was submitted to their journal is sufficiently new and separate to warrant publication or if there's just so much overlap and redundancy that it doesn't warrant it. That's probably relatively straightforward. There's lots of new data there. Then you're going to say, yes, this is new. I think it gets harder when you're talking about things like review articles and censuses. 
there's only a certain number of ways of describing the literature. And sure. if you're an expert in the field and you've already written a couple of textbook chapters and you wrote something for another journal last year and you're writing a review this year, it's difficult to actually make it very different. And I think then transparency and disclosure are the important things and discussing with the editor and saying, well, actually, some bits are going to need to be a bit similar or how can we actually make it different? I think that's the important thing. And maybe making it clear to readers as well where material has been adapted from other works. Otherwise, I think it is a discourtesy. It's wasting space. It's taking up reviewers' time. And there is only a limited amount of time and space out there. So it is a discourtesy. It is sloppy science if you are just recycling a lot of the time. But the context is important too. Absolutely. It's very, very useful advice. In fact, just to support your point, I would let our readers know that it's reasonably common for us to be alerted to redundancies or to the fact that a paper is being submitted that's part of a larger project and people are often worried about if they disclose that information that it will harm the review of their paper or the decision making and we commonly accept such papers as long as it can be made very explicit that yes this is novel enough and unique enough that it warrants being published in its own right. Yeah. I think, I mean, the other issue in terms of of text duplication and sort of recycling is there may actually be a copyright issue. As an author, you may feel, well, this is my text, but actually you may have, I mean, depending on the publication agreement, you may have actually assigned copyright to that journal. So actually, although it would be rare, in theory, you could be putting the second journal into legal jeopardy that they would not want to publish something that another journal already had the copyright on if it was a really extensive piece of text. And I think that's something that authors sometimes forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, you've just answered what was going to be my next question. I've had a number of people query as to why they should worry about redundant publication. If it's their own work, why is it an issue? And the copyright issues are certainly one. I might ask you to elaborate a little bit, though, on the other side of things as to why you would call it sloppy scholarship or any further reasons that you think is just not up to best practices. Well, I think one reason is that publication is the currency of academia. So your appointments, your tenure, your promotions will tend to depend on your productivity, i.e. the number of publications. Those publications are expected to be different. You're not expected to just get the same publication and churn it out in several different journals. So I think there's a feeling of an element of unfairness that if somebody is padding their resume, their CV, with lots of redundant publications, that's not really productivity. So I think that's one aspect. And as I say, if you think of the cost of peer review, I know peer reviewers are not paid, but there is a cost in terms of they're usually active researchers or scientists. So if they're not peer-reviewing, they could be doing some more productive research or doing something different. If we clog up the literature with lots and lots of redundant stuff, that's using up resources, if you like, in terms of the peer review, which is not such a great idea. I know with online publishing, you may say space is unlimited, you're not cutting down any trees, does it matter if there are different versions out there? But there is a cost to the scientific community. There's the editor's time, there's the reviewer's time, and I think it's a bit of a discourtesy to readers as well if you've already published it in one place and they are looking for something new, and if it comes out to be exactly the same, they may feel a bit short-changed. Right, right. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And the voluntary nature of a lot of the activities that go on around publishing is something that we often lose track of when we're pursuing our own publications as authors and trying to pursue promotion and tenure and all those things that go along with it. You're actually, your position as chair of COPE is a voluntary one itself. And so I think I'd end the podcast by thanking you for 
the very important work that you and the, the broader committee are doing. I would also reassure our readers that as members of COPE, medical education is not only trying to be on the lookout for best practices in terms of what we're enabling and supporting our authors in doing, but also trying to make sure that the journal itself adheres to best practices. And one of the things that Liz and her team offered uh, in the past year or so was an audit of our best practices, and we were very grateful to have received their feedback and to have had the opportunity to take steps to revise a few things and put down on paper some of the policy issues that hadn't been written down anywhere before. There are so many issues that we could have spent some time talking about from authorship challenges to salami slicing of papers, but I think the best way to give people some introduction to that material would be to direct them to the COPE website again, which is www.publicationethics.org. And as you said, to invite anybody who's interested to query me or query COPE directly about some issues that they might encounter to try to resolve them before they truly become issues. Again, thanks, Liz, and I wish you the best with your continued efforts in, in this area. Okay, very nice to talk to you. Thanks very much.